This is not the media. This is hell in the media. The problems with the internet are either framed as being caused by too little government interference or too much. Or it's a runaway marketplace that always lacked government oversight. A wild west of deregulation ruled by a private sector that is out of control. At times, whatever faults the internet may have are blamed on individuals, often egotistical billionaires whose personas have been inflated by the media. Doing so, however, distracts us from the role played by what Google and Facebook and all these platforms depend upon, and that is surveillance advertising. In other words, as we will learn today, many of the stories we are told or tell ourselves when it comes to the Internet are at best a distraction and at worst wrong. For instance, some see two major causes at play for whatever is wrong with the internet. As today's guest writes, one is that technological innovation has removed prior constraints on data gathering and processing, making it easier than ever to push the norms of decency and business. The other is a recent cultural shift in Silicon Valley, whereby company leaders and investors have moved away from ethical capitalism to pursue aggressive, greedy, and monopolistic business practices. In such a telling, this transformed capitalism, as they call it, is, 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 has, this has transformed uh, capitalism to such an unpleasant degree that it is now necessary for the government to step in. To put it bluntly, these accounts our guest today argues are wrong. Surveillance advertising has never existed outside of politics. Then there's the idea that on the internet, as our guest today writes, capitalism has gone rogue. Much like diagnoses that ignore the net's uh, political foundations, this position disregards historical continuities to focus only on what is new. Although the magnitude of contemporary commercial surveillance is certainly mind-bending, the system reflects enduring structural imperatives within a capitalist political economy dependent on perpetual gro- growth. Rather than a break from the past, supercharged online surveillance is better understood as an acceleration of capitalism's long-standing imperative to produce consumer demand, or so our guest argues. In a few minutes, we'll speak with media and communications scholar Matthew Crane, who wrote the Boston Review essay, How Capitalism, Not a Few Bad Actors, Destroyed the Internet, 25 Years of Neoliberal Political Economy, are to blame for today's regime of surveillance advertising and 
Only public policy can undo it. This is an essay that is adapted from uh, Matthew's book, Profit Over Privacy, How Surveillance Advertising Conquered the Internet. Matthew is Associate Professor of Media and Communications at Miami University. You can follow Matthew on Twitter at Mediated and followed by the number one. Mediated, followed by the number one. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live streaming, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Sebastian Vupper. Sebastian, anything new about you? Eh, not not really. Uh, went out this weekend to meet some new people, uh, met new people and their dogs, um, which is always fun. Well, so you had a good time. Yeah. yeah. What, what's going on on uh, the past inside the present day? Uh, I'm going to talk about railroad strikes. Oh, sweet. <laughs> railroad strikes. I wonder why. Yeah, Anything happened just, recently? Yeah, just, then? No, no, no real reason. Just okay. just had that, you know, in, in, in the pipeline. <laughs> I will be uh, sharing uh, in a bit what's new with me following our guest. Sebastian, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Uh, this week's question from hell is... Uh, Wait, I, the problem is that my fa- I'm not locked into Facebook here, so I'm going to have to pull this up on my phone. Uh, it has something to do with uh, seasonal affection. Yes. Se- seasonal affective. This not seasonal affectionate disorder. That's, um, <laughs> that's in spring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> seasonal affective uh, disorder. Okay, now it takes forever to load. So uh, there, there, as far as I recall, this week's question from hell is, <laughs> what besides a uh, fake sun lamp are you uh, using to stave off um, the the winter depression. There you go. That's it, pretty it, much it. In, in, in essence, not in words, yes. but you get the gist. Yes, and you can find it right now by going to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can uh, leave your answer there, or you can tweet it at us at thisishellradio, or you can email chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show, when we'll, we'll be announcing the winner of the question from hell, following Jeff Dorchin and his weekly commentary, The Moment of Truth. If your answer is is our favorite. You will get your choice of This Is Hell stuff. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, but maybe we should change that button to say stuff. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, This Is Hell, and Sebastian has this week's hangover cure. And I left all of the Icelandic restaurant names from last week that you had trouble with and I left them in this week's Hangover Cure. Oh, thank you. Thank sure, you. Certainly, so, certainly. so kind. Yes. So kind. <clears throat> uh, this week's Hangover Cure is from Iceland for the third week in a row. In early November, the website Iceland Airwaves at grapevine.is posted the article, Where to Cure Your Festival Hangover, with, as the site says, words by Irina Zubenko. Very Icelandic name. Um, the first time we referenced Zubenko... Is it Subranko or Subranko? You write it once with an R and once with a... It's Subranko, my mistake. Subranko, okay. The first time we referenced Subranko's words, she was suggesting the very Icelandic cure of going to the pool. We followed that up with Subranko's recommendation of eating potassium-rich food at Reykjavik restaurants (laughs) like Mandi, Lulabatur, Alibaba, which is still a very... uh, Again, a very Icelandic name. Uh, Hrath... Lestin, Rathlestin. That sounds good. Or Punk. Citing uh, the same article at Iceland Airwaves for the third week in a row, going back to the source, uh, just one more bite at the apple. This week's hangover cure is spinach. 
Who wrote this, Popeye? Yeah, exactly. Subrenko right. Subrenko writes. Speaking of potassium again, we've heard spinach has it all. Oftentimes, when hungover, you can't even think of eating anything ever again. Our advice: drink it. Local juicery Joe and the Juice, <laughs> again very Icelandic name, even has a name for it: Green Shield. Not very Icelandic name at all. This green juice will not only cure your hangover, but will also make your body stronger and less susceptible to any outside dangers the next festival might bring. Really? Really, Popeye? <laughs> really? Is that, that, that is you, right? I, I can I It's can the see deep that. pockets of big spinach, I'm yeah, telling you. Yeah. Those pesky germs don't stand a chance against your newly boosted immune system. That makes this week's hangover cure spinach juice. Tune in next week for yet another, <laughs> yet another Icelandic hangover cure. Really, Chuck? Oh, we have two more of these left. Now, a word from our sponsors, and as we are completely listener-supported, our sponsor is you. Tell us what you think. Give us your constructive and or destructive criticism. Send us your guest or topic suggestions or anything you'd like to share via email, Facebook, Twitter. And if you do send us your guest uh, guest or topic suggestion and we use your suggested guest or topic on the show, we will thank you personally during that conversation. Not Too Late writes, Hi Chuck. So sorry to hear you got COVID. I really hope you feel better soon. Thank you. Not too late. I also wanted to say how well Sebastian did on the latest episode, talking about digital media and the historical record. Super interesting topic that I'd never considered before. Great job, Sebastian. Love to you all. Not too late. Sebastian, was that when I was out? Do you remember if that was the first Monday, November 14th, or the following Monday, November 21st? Because I want to direct people to that show. I want to say it was the first. So, um, so maybe the November me, 14th podcast. Let me, yeah, yeah. Let, let me double check with our archives, and then I'll uh, I'll get back to you in uh, a second. Yeah, because uh, I want to share that with everybody, because uh, if not too late liked it, then maybe... Other people will like it as well. Brian D. writes to us asking, Hey Chuck, do you still have subvertising stickers? Did not see them at the website. Hope you are well. Brian, I don't know. I think we still have the subvertising stickers that are a simple cartoon bubble stating this is hell, which listeners have posted on advertising and other signs all over the world, including in zoos, so images of animals are suddenly saying, This is hell. And I think you can see those images uh, that listeners have shared with us on our Facebook and Instagram accounts, I think. I don't know. But I'm looking into those advertising stickers and if we still have them at this very moment. We got an email from an editor at the Boston Review where today's guest essay was posted. And I'm hoping we're not in trouble. Hi, Chuck, Seb, Alex. I'm an editor at Boston Review. Yikes. I'm not sure whether some of my colleagues might have already reached out before to say, oh, thanks for the incredible work you're doing and your frequent invitations to our contributors. But I wanted to say thanks anyway. Your show is so terrific, and I'm grateful to see so many of our writers get airtime. In solidarity from Boston, Matt Lord, senior editor, Boston Review. Thanks, Matt. We appreciate the gratitude. But of course... Now that you've written to us and thanked us, and I read it on air, having guests on the future featuring writers whose work was featured in Boston Review, that might be considered by haters as some sort of weird conflict of interest as through this simple exchange on email and on the air, we have now established uh, some degree of a personal relationship. 
Therefore, in order for us to maintain the pretense of integrity, let us never speak of this email again. And thanks, Matt. Martin F. in Chicago writes, Hi, Chuck. I wanted to ask my own question from hell after listening to your talk the day before Election Day with Liliana Mason, co-author of Radical American Partisanship, Mapping Violent Hostility, Its Causes and the Consequences for Democracy. And that question is, if humans are willing to give up economic security for social status, i.e. if tribalism is written into our very DNA as a species, then how the F are leftist ideas and movements ever supposed to triumph over racism, sexism, and every other form of bigotry or political economic oppression? Because I just don't see it happening. Humans are selfish, intolerant, bigoted pieces of crap. And that's why this is hell. Signed, Martin F. in Chicago. I'm not sure what experience Martin may have had that would lead him to think so poorly of humanity. Wait a second, we... Seem to have another email here from Martin in Chicago that came about a month earlier. Maybe there's a clue in here. Back in October, Martin F. in Chicago wrote, Hi, Chuck. I was listening with great interest to your discussion about Harold Washington and the movie Punch Nine for Harold Washington. I'm not sure if you remember me from the one time I visited you in the studio, but I used to be an archivist, and in the process of uh, perfecting my archival chops, I volunteered at the Chicago Historical Society to process, organize in layman's terms, their historical collections. One of the collections I worked on was a local community organization called Save Our Neighborhood, Save Our City. They were committed to fight scattered site housing on the northwest side of the city. One document I found in the uh, collection was a depiction of Mayor Harold Washington as a gorilla. Needless to say, it was insanely racist, but also incredibly fascinating to me as a student of history. Just thought I'd share my experience. All the best, Martin F. in Chicago. While I may not agree with Martin's statement that humans are selfish, intolerant, bigoted pieces of crap... To the same degree that Martin does, I can certainly sympathize with him and why he may feel that way after processing the historic documents on the Save Our Neighborhood, Save Our City white supremacist movement that emerged following Harold Washington winning the Democratic primary on his way to becoming the first black mayor of Chicago. And don't forget to see Joe Winston's Punch Nine for Harold Washington, which you can find online. And check out our interview with Joe from uh, earlier this year at thisishell.com. All you have to do is search on the last name Winston. Speaking of interviews, you can find it at our website, thisishell.com. While I was out, producer Alexander Jerry sat in and shared one of his favorite interviews we have ever done on the show. Listener Gregory K. writes, I want to share that interview, uh, the show that's playing right now on NUR with friends. I searched on Michael Parenti on the site and got nothing. Nothing, Chuck. Love, Gregory. Gregory, you were listening when you were listening back in early November. You were listening to a 2007 conversation we had with the great cultural critic Michael Parenti back on November 1st. And I think you can go to our site and find it there, but I'm not certain. At our site, all we currently have available are interviews dating back to 2014 and shows dating back to 2014. And access is free at thisishell.com, but you can find that interview 
If you are a Patreon patron at patreon.com slash this is hell, as one of the perks listeners get for subscribing to the Patreon podcast is access to classic interviews predating 2014 and stretching all the way back to our beginning in July of 1996. Our goal is to make our entire catalog of past interviews free to everyone. That's one of the reasons we ask that you support us via Patreon, because our intent is to put uh, those resources toward being able to afford to do just that, give everyone all of our shows from our entire archive for free. Support This Is Hell by subscribing at patreon.com slash this is hell or just by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And so far, as far as uh, I can see from our own archive, uh, where I talked about digital history must have been the Patreon episode. Oh, really? Um, I think. Oh, the one that you and Jeff did together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, because so people have to go to patreon.com slash this is hell if yeah. they want to hear that one. I mean, I've been, I've been, I, I, maybe I should do the thing that Jeff does and just, uh, record or just, like, turn, uh, the past side of present into, like, a, a segment to upload to the website. Oh, separately? separately? Yeah, maybe. I mean, just see how that goes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk anyway, about that. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, coming up on the show, our talk with Mike, Matthew Crane on the shortcomings of the internet and uh, how it's not just about a couple of annoying billionaires. We'll tell you what happened on our most recent Patreon podcast of This Is Hell exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. We'll have a new edition of The Past Inside the Present when producer Sebastian Voper, who holds a doctorate in history, provides us with the historical context of the past so we can have a better understanding of the present. And again, Sebastian will be talking about railway strikes today. Day. Live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy. This is hell, at least not privately owned by us. It's easy to blame thoroughly obnoxious billionaires who are not the geniuses the media makes them out to be. It's easy to blame uh, everything we hate about the internet on them. But when we focus on the individual, we are distracted from recognizing the real force driving everything that's god-awful about the Internet. Here to help us have a better grip on what makes the Internet suck so bad, media and communication scholar Matthew Crane wrote the Boston Review essay, How Capitalism, Not a Few Bad Actors, Destroyed the Internet. It's adapted from uh, Matthew's recent book, Profit Over Privacy, How Surveillance Advertising Conquered the Internet. Welcome to This Is Hell, Matthew. Hi, Chuck. It's great to have you on the show. This is fascinating because it gets at the... So often, as you know, uh, we see in the media how much is distracted by the idea of celebrity almost and always giving far too much power and influence to celebrities. You begin by writing that the race to commercialize the Internet is over and advertising is the big winner. This is excellent news if you are an executive or major shareholder of one of the handful of uh, companies that dominates the $600 billion global digital advertising economy. For almost everyone else, advertising good fortunes have meant the erosion of privacy, autonomy, and security, as well as a weakening of the collective means to hold power accountable. Internet advertising is an erosion of our rights and our ability to hold those accountable for for taking, for losing those rights. What is internet advertising's impact on democracy? Because, it, you know, the internet was supposed to be a tool to promote and even spread democracy. That's what we were told even when, as the Arab Spring was taking place, that none of this would have happened if it wasn't for the great technology of Facebook. So what is the real impact of the internet on democracy? Yes, that's a very complex question. And 
There are arguments on multiple sides of that question. I think in terms of the advertising business model, which we're all familiar with to a certain extent, uh, that is based on gathering data about internet users indiscriminately, taking that data, combining it with other data, using algorithms to make inferences about people based on the data that's collected, and then using that data to make decisions about people's lives. So somewhat innocuously, that a lot of those decisions are, we're going to show Chuck an ad for X, uh, or we're going to show him an ad for Y, depending on our various uh, algorithms and the data that we have collected. But increasingly, it's really hard to uh, put data in a silo, because the way that data is monetized is by trying to reuse it over and over again, trying to sell it on down to another company that might want to use it for a different purpose. So one of the things that happens in a internet economy that's completely dominated by surveillance is that data gets you know, collected in one context and it gets used in a whole variety of other contexts. So our internet data, which in, in any individual piece of that data might not be that meaningful to our lives, but in aggregate and over time can be used to make sometimes critical decisions about us. So decisions whether you are qualified for a loan, decisions about employment, decisions about insurance, decisions about whether the police are going to barge down your door are all informed by data and it's all part of a surveillance advertising economy. So how, the, how does this relate to democracy? One level of this is it erodes accountability. When we are subject to institutions and organizations that make decisions about our lives based on data that is inscrutable to us, that is a disaster for democratic accountability in our relationships with private organizations like companies, but also our governments. So what would you say to somebody who argues, well, yeah, that undermines our democracy on the internet, that undermines the accountability of the internet. What happens when this is, uh, you know, kind of put in a vacuum, put off to the side as if this is something that only happens on the internet? Is it something, it, it, what happens when we uh, are distracted by this idea that it only exists as a, uh, an attack uh, on our democracy, on our rights online? Mm -hmm. I mean, that argument rests on a very faulty assumption, which is that you can, in the year 2022, separate online and offline lives, right? Average adult in the United States spends over two hours a day just on social media. And we increasingly live our lives through these communication technologies. And sometimes that's because uh, alternatives have been eroded. So as Twitter uh, becomes the public sphere, then our democratic fortunes rise and fall with Twitter. So I think it's a little bit disingenuous to try to separate online and offline because the only way you can truly extract yourself individually from this surveillance 
uh, advertising and, you know, the capitalism online is to go live in a cave somewhere, which doesn't work for most people. And even if you're doing that, uh, you're still not divorced from the rest of society, which is fully immersed in this type of um, economics. Yeah, let's just expand on that a little bit because you write surveillance advertisers use data to build consumer profiles, sorting people into various categories and rating them against any number of predictive benchmarks, such as, as you were saying, creditworthiness, propensity to buy a luxury car or risk for alcoholism. Meta uh, actually maintains profiles not only for its 2.7 billion users, but also for people who have never signed up for any of the company's (laughs) services. And and all this data can be used to make startling and intimate predictions. How can it gather information even on those who never signed up for their services? Because so many times I've had this conversation with people and they'll just say, well, I just don't use Facebook or I just don't use Twitter. And they feel like they are safe from this kind of surveillance. So how can internet surveillance, how can this advertising surveillance uh, even work when it, uh, on people who've never signed up for their services? Right. So the devil's in the details for a lot of specifics on this, but at a general level, the there's two there's two really components. Like technically, this data gathering is baked into the infrastructure, the technical infrastructure of our of our uh, of the internet and all of the apps that we use every day. So Facebook through things like social liking buttons or various types of um Tracking technologies can use third-party websites to gather data on people that aren't Facebook users. And it's relatively simple because Facebook is also buying and selling or, you know, Facebook, Google. You can substitute whichever tech behemoth that you want to that's in the advertising game. Increasingly, Amazon is a major player in advertising as well. But they develop infrastructures to buy and sell ads across a whole range of websites. So you could never once you know, look at uh, Google or uh, Instagram proper, but you'd still run into their trackers. Uh, Study done a couple of years ago that looked at the 1 million most visited websites. And it was something like 90% of them had third parties trackers on them. And in some cases, it's hundreds and hundreds of trackers. So it is a -a whack-a-mole game to try to uh, extract yourself. Uh, that's the kind of technical level. So uh, what makes internet advertising any worse than advertising before the internet? Democracy survived that advertising. Why is it any more vulnerable to internet advertising? Right. So a part of the, part of the reason is uh, hyper the, the capacity to do hyper-targeting. And this, so, you know, in 1970, there's three TV channels and they're targeting to mass audiences and they have no way to know who's watching what show it's all done on um, statistically sampling small audiences and then everybody was kind of okay with the fuzziness in terms of buying and selling ads in this period once you enable the technical capacity to send an ad to literally a target audience of one person if you are so inclined that changes the game on uh, how advertising is targeted. And it becomes less about who you are uh, and more about what kind of vulnerabilities to marketing messages might be able to be leveraged in order to achieve a particular advertising outcome. So, you know, I don't want to 
give too much credence to the power of digital ads, right? Sometimes you, critics can get uh, a little over their skis when they talk about you know, Facebook or Google ads as kind of like a form of uh, what the science fiction writer Cory Doctorow calls a mind control ray, right? It's not mind control, but it is a qualitatively different type of scenario than advertising it has been in this country for a very long time. So I think it's important to look at, you know, what's different, but really it's also important to look at what's exactly the same and the continuities between the advertising uh, on the internet and the kind of advertising that we've used to support all of our, you know, not what I wouldn't, wouldn't say all because this is hell would not fit into this category, but the vast majority of our media, media in this country has been ad supported for over 100 years. So that is an important thread to think through also. You also point out that the political and economic roots of surveillance advertising are important pieces of a larger conversation about internet companies and the power they wield in society. This conversation, <clears throat> excuse me, this conversation went mainstream in 2017 as journalists, tech workers, activists, and academics investigated and publicized a cascade of scandals coming from Silicon Valley. It went in in what became known as the tech lash. The world's biggest internet companies faced international public rebuke over controversies around uh, gender gender discrimination, appalling labor conditions, tax data scrutiny and security, uh, anti-competitive behavior, tax avoidance, addictive product design, algorithmic bias and objectionable military contracts, public opinion cratered as pollsters report that few Americans trust major tech companies to consistently do what is right. Is there any indication whatsoever that from the beginning, the public did trust the big tech companies and believe that what they were doing was right? Was there a level of consumer naivete or did the consumer not really have any choice and this was just foisted upon them? Uh, I think it's both. I mean, my work has really been to kind of survey the landscape and then say, how exactly did we get here, right? And so in doing that, you have to look, you know, in the 1990s, in the 2000s, in this kind of dot-com era, when there was a lot of, justifiably so, I think, optimism about a new communications medium, right? I mean, you have to remember, even though it sounds silly to think about be optimistic about the internet in some ways today. Uh, when this was new, it was potentially uh, a very important and maybe even democratically infused technology. It wasn't guaranteed to be. And that was kind of the spin that was baked into it, which was that these companies, and I heard you mention the Arab Spring early on in your intro, we're, we're kind of inherently democratic. Um, and that is the fallacy. But that doesn't mean that they didn't have uh, the potential to be. And whether that potential is comes to fruition or not, uh, my argument is that that really depends less on the technology and much more on the political economy. And in particular, there are public policy decisions that were made um, in the 90s, by the executive branch in the Bill Clinton administration, but also in Congress that set the framework and the institutional structure for what this new thing called the internet was gonna be for the American people. 
and consequently for uh, you know people in other countries as well, because we were a very early lead on setting the tone for what the internet was going to be. So it's not right to say, you know, there was never any potential here. And Silicon Valley coasted on good vibes for a very long time. And so the kind of the kind of vibe shift I'm referencing in that passage is about the tech lash when that those good vibes started to run out. And then everyone was pointing fingers and saying, okay, what exactly is wrong here? You know, is it is it about is it a few bad billionaires? Is it uh, some people have just overstepped their bounds? Um, or is it a structural problem and a political problem, which is where I fall? So what was the internet, was this whole business model that uh, around uh, surveillance advertising, was it intended to erode our rights and undermine democracy for profit? Or was these, or do you think these were all unintended consequences? Yeah, that's a bit conspiratorial to th- for, for me to say intended, right? I mean, capitalism pursues profit above all else. It pursues expansion above all else. And in that is baked in one uh, momentum to externalize costs. So social costs, bad outcomes, we want to remove those from the system. We don't want the system to have to account for those on the balance sheet. And if society pays the price in a more manipulative public sphere or the decimation of ad-supported journalism, then that's fine for capitalism. And capitalism is also inherently undemocratic in many ways. This goes against uh, you know, mainstream orthodoxy on this issue, but a workplace is not democratic. Uh, Twitter is not democratic. It is owned and the deciders are the owners. So once you say we're going to let markets run the show, then you are tacitly uh, introducing this concept of an undemocratic power structure. And you're willing to accept that some social costs are going to be produced and be externalized. That was not done intentionally uh, by policymakers in this key era. They um, really believed, as far as I can tell from the archival research that I've done, that markets were the best way to allocate resources and that benefits would trickle down from um, a prosperous internet economy. There was some dissent, but it became a question of priorities and it became a question of whose priorities are going to uh, win the day. You have to remember Bill Clinton's uh, neoliberal democratic revolution was a response to the Reagan revolution, which prioritized free markets, laissez-faire, trickle-down economics, and deregulation. The Democratic Party's political response to Reagan's electoral success was to adopt many of those policies itself. And that's the context in which these key decisions about the internet were made. 
You also cite journalist Rana Farohar, who, uh, writing about surveillance uh, advertising, that their business depends on manipulating behavior. It is a business model that causes endless collateral damage. You add, even the creator of the World Wide Web, Tim Berners-Lee, weighed in, and you quote him saying, we don't have a technology problem, we have a social problem. Did whatever the social problem is exist prior to the internet? Did the internet exacerbate an already existing social problem, or is this a social problem that the internet created? Yeah, it definitely, it's an accelerator. The surveillance advertising that destroys privacy is regular advertising on steroids. So I really want to be careful about thinking about the internet as introducing brand new types of social problems. The the one of the theories of what the internet was going to do and why it was going to be so revolutionary, it was going to change capitalism. It was going to capital it was going to make our economy more meritocratic. Steve uh excuse me, Bill Gates famously talked about friction-free capitalism where buyers and sellers could meet and it would be much more efficient. Uh this is not exactly how things panned out. You also write that the business objective of all this data collection and profiling is to sell the capacity to influence people's actions and attitudes. What Shoshana Zuboff in her book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, calls the means of behavioral modification. And you mentioned that today the cutting edge of this practice uses data signals to forecast and test people's vulnerability to different kinds of appeals. Advertising that is designed to exploit emotions and personality traits has been uh, found to be particularly uh, promising. Internal documents leaked in 2017 show that Facebook claimed its ad platform could predict the emotional states of teenage users to enable advertisers to reach those who feel worthless and insecure. Those are Both those words are in quotes, in real time. As Francis Haugen, the ex-employee, Facebook employee uh, turned whistleblower, told Congress last year, her former company knew about the harmful impacts of its business model, but chose to put profits over people. What harm is done, done when advertisers can predict which teens might be insecure or have feelings of worthlessness? Because I can see somebody who is a supporter, who's somebody who backs social media, who backs you know, internet surveillance uh, advertising, saying that, oh, well, this can help us address the problems that uh, teens have today. And this isn't about collecting information about them to, you know, exploit them. This is about potentially getting information from them so we could help them out. So what harm is done when advertisers can predict which teens might be insecure or have feelings of worthlessness? Right. Yeah. So that's that's interesting, right? Because you have to come back to the question, what is this uh, surveillance infrastructure designed to do and how does it pay its bills? Right. So it's certainly true that collecting data to monitor folks for uh, legitimate and maybe even serious mental health problems you could see a world where that uh, has fruitful applications, right? But that's not the business that these companies are in. They're interested in selling makeup, right? Or whatever, or uh, any commodity or any political ideology, right? They created this thing and I, I called it elsewhere a digital influence machine. And they'll sell that that capacity to the, literally the highest bidders and uh, 
the highest bid wins the right to put a message in front of that audience. So if the money is not in influencing consumer behavior, if it isn't like the mind control ray that you quote Cory Doctorow saying it is not Mm. the mind control ray, if the money is not in influencing consumer behavior, then it seems like the way for making profits is just the collecting and selling of information about us. Is the real money in collecting information about us, not us buying stuff when it comes to surveillance advertising? And what do we miss in our understanding of online advertising when we see it as trying to influence us as consumers, but in reality, it's more about just collecting information about us and selling that information. Well, it's definitely trying to influence us. I think we got to think about, you know, think about Meta or think about Google as operating in two markets and they have two sets of customers, right? So the users are one market and we make up one set of customers and the other market is the advertisers or whoever else is buying ads And that makes up a different set of customers. Those customers have opposite interests in many cases. And the stories that the tech platforms or the ad platforms tell to those respective markets and those respective sets of customers are very different. So when when we we say it's not a mind control, Ray, that means that on, on balance, these ads are not that incredibly effective at, you know, modifying our attitudes or modifying our behavior. But they are incrementally more effective than a blanket advertisement put on a billboard where, you know, most of the people who watch it are completely out of that market. So they're going to tell a story to their customer, their paying customers that, yeah, this is a mind control, Ray. They're going to try to play up that uh, this is effective and it's more effective than any other tool that's available right now. So this is where you should spend your marketing spend. And that's been a very incredible story, not only because the ads are marginally effective, but because these companies have become quasi-monopolies and have been able to crowd out effective competition. So uh, it's not a mind control, Ray, but it is where the money comes from, without a doubt. So uh, you know this advertising engine uh, underpinning most of the apps and websites and services that we use and rely on every day, that is the moneymaker. Whether it succeeds in its stated goal is an open question, but in some ways that doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter as much whether a given person is influenced by a given ad, even if that ad is malicious and targets a particular vulnerability. What matters is that we have a system that's completely designed around these goals of influence. And it's a system that inspires a lack of trust. It inspires insincerity. It inspires the very opposite types of values that you would want out of a working public sphere, right? We know we're marks. We know that uh, everything is uh, trying to sell us something. And so we either lean into that and become detached and ironic uh, and or we just resign ourselves to the fact that this is the state of affairs. And the historical frame is important because it pushes back against that resignation and says, this is the state of affairs, yes, but it is so for particular reasons. Human beings made decisions that were impactful. It is not handed down from uh, from God to Moses that we're going to be 
constantly surveilled every time we go online. Yes, this isn't. This wasn't created in some natural process. That's something that people always have to remember. That this this is the result of choices that were made. You, exactly. we, we are speaking with media and communications scholar Matthew Crane, who wrote the Boston Review essay, "How Capitalism, Not a Few Bad Actors, Destroyed the Internet," which is adapted from uh, Matthew's recent book. Profit over privacy, how surveillance advertising conquered the internet. You write one of the most troubling outgrowths of digital advertising's market concentration is the exacerbating revenue crisis among U.S. news organizations. Although the problem is multifaceted, the fact that two or three companies hoover up the majority of advertising spending in the United States means that news organizations must compete with every other ad-supported internet service for the scraps. Newspapers, still the most important source of original reporting, have suffered the worst. But haven't newspapers and what they provided in the past either moved to an online format or even grown with purely digital information sites that maybe were a paper at one time or likely were never in any kind of print format but are now an online news source? Doesn't the Internet provide us with even more information than newspapers ever did? You you write about how newspapers are still the most important source of original reporting, and they have suffered the worst. Haven't newspapers and what they provided in the past either moved to an online format or even possibly grown with purely digital information sites that maybe were a paper, you know, maybe that came from a newspaper at one time, but or, or maybe they were likely never in any kind of print format. Doesn't the Internet provide us with even more information than newspapers ever did? That's true, but not all information is created equal. Uh, Neil Postman, who's like the most cantankerous media critic uh, that has just tons of really great quotable quotes, he wrote the very uh, well-known book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, about television in the 80s. He later looked at the early internet and he said, information is becoming a form of garbage. We're being inundated, and instead of uh, information scarcity, we live in a world of information abundance, and most of it's literally trash, is his argument. So the reason why newspapers are important isn't because the newspaper is a special thing, even though uh, the press is you know, one of the few businesses that gets a direct call out in the Bill of Rights. Uh, newspapers itself isn't what you know got Jefferson and Madison excited. It was a uh, check on uh, government power and in check on private power. And the reason why newspapers are front and center in this re- really important conversation about journalism's revenue crisis is because the majority of original investigative reporting, uh, especially in you know local, uh, uh, maybe not quite so populous areas, uh, stems from newspapers. So the crisis in newspapers is really about a crisis of investigative journalism of the kind that is able to put a check on uh, on power. And that's another reason uh, to kind of connect back to one of your earlier themes, Chuck. Another reason why democracy is imperiled in this internet uh, surveillance landscape the de- decimation of journalism is not something that tech companies set out to do. In fact, they've you know even given a bunch of money to newspapers to try to, you know, f- make this problem go away for them politically. Um, but it's an externality of the situation. They collect uh, the lion's share of the revenue. Newspapers are left with the scraps. So in my home state now of Ohio, 
we have 40% less newspapers than we did 15 years ago. Uh, and that means that many counties are essentially news deserts where no one is covering local government, no one is covering the state government. And if you know anything about Ohio politics, that is a recipe and it has been a recipe for corruption. So you talk about these news deserts. These news deserts, of course, they've been multiplying and multiplying ever since the uh, Telecommunications Act of 1996. Uh, in some parts of, uh, I have a family in northern Michigan, up in the UP, Upper Peninsula, and uh, they tell me that you know there's not even a local radio station. Everything is completely computer uh, programmed, and maybe once an hour a voice might come on to tell you what the time and the temperature is, but that's about it. You don't get any local news from local uh, radio stations anymore. Anymore. And then you have this uh, decrease in the number of newspapers that we have with the concentration of wealth as it happens when it comes to journalism and these mass communications uh, platforms. We have fewer and fewer choices and we have more and more of these news deserts. Is the real problem the concentration of wealth within the journalism industry, within the media industry? Is that the real problem? That, that is the real problem the Telecommunications Act of 1996 or is the, or is the problem the technology of the Internet? It's both of those things. Um, there, you might even go a step further to say that the problem is that our journalism in this country has been supported by advertising. And advertising is not out to fund journalism. Uh, you know, we can think even pre-internet, you know, advertisers weren't funding newspapers because they're interested in investigative journalism or they were interested in having a public sphere in, in a particular community, they wanted to reach target consumers. And if they have a uh, what is perceived as a better option to target consumers online, they'll do, they'll do that. So um, media scholar Victor Picard, who's looked at this question in a lot of detail, argues that in some ways, the 20th century of ad-funded journalism in the United States is an anomaly that now is come crashing down and it's a market failure. In other words, journalism isn't a uh, service that markets will tend to produce. And when we have situations of market failure, public policy, again, to keep harping on this, is uh, one tool and perhaps the only tool to support a viable uh, journalism. So the answer shouldn't be that technology killed newspapers or that um, corporate concentration uh, killed newspapers, or the the you know the the chain ownership killed newspapers. Those are all true. Hedge funds now killing newspapers, right? All of that's true. But uh, to take one step back, is capitalism and a capitalist political economy going to fund journalism reliably? And the question was always kind of hit or miss. But now it sort of seems to be quite clear that. In an internet era, advertising is not simply up to the task of funding news. So we need to start looking at different types of solutions. You write in the absence of public activism, the state has reliably made media policy in service of private sector interests, but no political outcome is ever guaranteed. 
Why do you think there is a lack of public advertise or public activism around commercial surveillance via the internet in a few major companies? Why is there that lack of uh, uh, activism? I mean, after all, the internet is something we all use. It affects all of us. So why the lack of interest in not doing something to make the internet better and less intrusive? Well, there there has been periodic episodes of interest. There was uh, one of the most successful kind of media policy campaigns I can think of in the last couple of decades has been the uh, movement around network neutrality. And even in the early period of decision making, there was not widespread popular activism because the Internet was so new that people did not really understand what was going on. And also companies that began this tracking business model didn't tell anyone they were doing it. They just did it. There were no pop-ups. There were no cookie preferences. It was all just done by default. So there's a very limited opportunity for widespread public activism to take hold. There was beltway activism. There were activist groups, and I chronicle this in the book, who you know mounted some serious challenges to this business model, but they were ultimately uh, defeated by the the advertising and marketing complex who convinced the Federal Trade Commission and Congress to kind of let the markets um, operate this this internet on their own accord. Uh, So, you know, it's it's not impossible for the public to get involved here. But the point I'm trying to make in that excerpt is that the decisions that were made early on, which are the most important decisions, because Once you set policy decisions and say, okay, we're not going to have a federal privacy law in this country, which we still don't have, then, you know, markets start moving, businesses start um, coalescing around that foundation, fortunes get made, and it just gets harder and harder to make alterations, the more cemented into place a particular business model gets. So the early period is really key. And in the United States, as is the case with the early decisions around television and early decisions around other types of media, no one asked people. The policymakers made this decision on their own in concert with lobbyists, and they did what they thought was best at the time, uh, but it uh, didn't really work out that way. So to you, what explains why the public is so often not consulted when it comes to communications policy? Why we rarely, if ever, vote or on anything to do with communications policy, mm-hmm. why communications policy is, why isn't it an issue for candidates and public or political debate around election time? Why does it seem to exist completely outside of public scrutiny? This is a tough question that you could try to study empirically. One hypothesis, and people did study this around the Telecommunications Act in 1996, which is that the very companies who would be affected by this legislation um, we're the ones whose job it is to inform the public about it, right? So if uh, interested parties, aka the news media, uh, rarely covered it, right? And so if it's not on the agenda, then it becomes really hard for public to have an opinion one way or another. You also mentioned uh, Shoshana uh, Zuhoff's uh, 
about Zuboff, uh, her influential theory of surveillance capitalism. You bring it up again, and you write that her premise is that the relationship between technology, business, and consumer data under surveillance capitalism represents a marked deviation from prior modes of economic production. For Zuboff, capitalism has gone rogue. Much like diagnoses that ignore the net's political foundations, this position disregards historical continuities to focus only on what is new. Although the magnitude of contemporary commercial surveillance is certainly mind-bending, as I was mentioning earlier during the introduction, the system reflects enduring structural imperatives within a capitalist political economy dependent on perpetual growth. So we get distracted from the enduring nature of capitalism by what has changed. So are, are we then too focused on neoliberalism because we're not focusing on the enduring quality of capitalism only on what has changed with capitalism yeah i think there's a lot of value in zuboff's work but i do think she emphasizes that this is some malformed mutation of an otherwise kind of ethical or benign techno techno capitalism and if you take a longer view it is very much in line with what marketers and what media have wanted to do since the beginning. The famous, very famous quote in sort of advertising history of a department store magnate named John Wanamaker. And he said something like, I know that half the money I spend on my advertising is wasted. I just don't know which half. And this is from like, you know, the, the early, early kind of department store era of advertising. So what that quote shows you is that advertisers have always been interested in collecting data. They just didn't have the technical means to do so. So that's why it's important to frame this as kind of an acceleration of a uh, capitalist political economy. And you have to look at the relationship between advertising and media and uh, political economy in, in the United States. And advertising has always been hitched to the media. They've become, you know, mutually uh, constitutive of each other in order to generate demand for the vast amount of consumer products that are made in industrial capitalism and to create a consumer ideologies where our hopes, our desires, our problems, our, uh, you know, human conditions can be solved in the marketplace, buying and selling and feeling good about products, et cetera. So with that lens, the internet isn't something that came along and changed capitalism. Really, the internet was subsumed into capitalism and surveillance internet, this inescapable dragnet, is a logical outgrowth of the media system that we've had in this country for a long time. You write that by the 1990s, the marketing complex was keenly attuned to the emergence of a new crop of interactive media that included the World Wide Web. The web was simultaneously a danger and opportunity at once conceivable as advertising's next frontier and its mortal wound. Among the greatest threats was that interactivity would provide individuals with new kinds of media autonomy, uh, perhaps even the power to excise advertising altogether. The U.S. remained the unquestioned stronghold of global consumer capitalism, but such a position requires constant maintenance through advertising-based media and communication systems designed to stoke demand and foster consumer subjectivities. To turn threat into opportunity, 
The marketing complex needed the support of the federal government, as well as a push from the investor class of Silicon Valley. So was there a sense to any degree that the Internet could be a threat to U.S. global domination, that global consumer capitalism and the U.S. control over it, as well as how it enforced U.S. power globally, could all be under threat? Was the government in- interested in promoting it, in promoting the, uh, you know, this Internet surveillance capitalism because they saw it as a possible national, because they saw the Internet as a possible national security threat if it was not in the private sector's hands? Right. And this is some of my favorite parts of doing this research. And there's a couple of dimensions here. The Clinton administration absolutely saw this as a geopolitical priority. Remember, Clinton was elected. One of his campaign slogans was, it's the economy, stupid. They came out, it came out to power during a recession and they hitched their wagons to deregulating media, the internet and finance to jumpstart the economy. And they wanted to be the world leader in this new information, internet-based digital capitalism. On the marketer's side, right, the, the folks who were, you know, a, a little bit of a lower register of activity, the people who are just trying to sell shoes and makeup and whatever else through whatever means that they can, they're, you know, I, I read, I read, you know, a lot of trade press articles and looked at, you know, the ways these companies were talking about the internet during this period. And in some ways they were scared to death and they were worried that this media system that had long been dictated uh, by their interests, right, would get away from them. And the internet would be a non-commercial medium. And there was no way to capture consumer attention. And so this impetus to track consumers and collect data and create ads that are incredibly relevant and tailored to them, that all comes out of this threat that the internet was going to be a massively popular communications medium that was not designed to serve advertisers. And so they marshaled a major lobbying front. And when Clinton sat down at his desk in the Oval Office in 1993 in January, there was a stack of letters waiting for him from the advertising industry saying, this must be an ad-supported medium uh, because otherwise... Uh, it's not going to be freely accessible to all, and it will be un-American. So there was this palpable fear, and they were largely successful in heading off that threat. But how much do we recognize that that kind of grand bargain was made? Because once there, when, during the Techlash era, uh, there, on the, there was an article on the front page of the New York Times, I remember it distinctly on the left side of the pa- uh, front page, saying that uh, everybody was knew that there was a grand bargain made between us and Facebook. We all knew that, there, that our, uh, we were going to have all this internet surveillance on us, that we weren't going to have any privacy. We lose our privacy and we get free internet. That was the deal that we made. Did we make that deal? And if we did make that deal, was it worth it? No, to me, that's a, that's public relations that only uh, comes to fruition and becomes, you know, deployed by the industry once they start getting flack um, in a serious way. There was no referendum on this, this trade-off fallacy, right? Because it's not a fair deal. Uh, and it, it might seem great. We get these, we get these free services and these services are useful to us, 
but there's really no way to make that bargain when the data that's collected as you use those services might end up impacting your uh, rental application for a new apartment or the premiums that you're going to pay on life insurance, right? So you, there's no way to, to, uh, to judge that, yeah, this is a fair trade. I'm going to get what I want now, which is to use this social media site or do an internet search or whatever. And then later down the line, maybe some decisions will be made about me, but I really have no way of knowing what those are. Maybe none will, you know, it's impossible to, to make a rational market trade-off. So the idea was, yes, we're going to set up a market for privacy and people who want it will be able to achieve it. And people who don't want it will be able to, you know, uh, give their data away. But uh, it, it, it's not a fair bargain because it can never actually be implemented as such. And uh, not the least of which is that there's really very scant opportunities to be online without being surveilled. So if it, if, it, if it was really a bargain and if it was really that people knew what they were getting into, then um, we would think there'd be a much more competitive market where those alternatives existed. One other thing on this, which is that a couple of... I want to say it was in 2020, but COVID has my uh, inner clock uh, completely messed up. Recently, Apple made a, a, a seemingly insignificant change to its uh, privacy practices on the App Store. So before, if you wanted to opt out from surveillance from apps, you had to go into some menus and you could do it, but it was kind of non-intuitive and not many people did it. They made a change called ATT, forget what it stands for. But it was a new prompt that when you downloaded a new app, a pop-up would come up and it would say, do you want this app to do third-party tracking? It was a very simple prompt, yes or no. The vast majority of people opted out when given a choice. So that should put the lie to bed that people are willfully and knowingly engaging in you know, letting themselves be surveilled to get free stuff and free services online. If you give people an actual choice, they will take that choice and they overwhelmingly are not interested in having their privacy be destroyed by nameless companies. Uh, the other thing that happened Apple, after that Apple did that was that Facebook lost, you know, $10 million. So it, it really was a clear, and I don't want to say Apple's the good guy here. They have all kinds of motives and now they're moving into advertising. So it was clearly, you know, capitalists throwing elbows at each other. But nonetheless, it really laid bare the actual mechanics of, of the relationship between audiences, tech platforms, and advertisers. And what humans wanted. It was, uh, it, it, I mean, it is as mu much of a democratic process as can be faced right now when we're not having any kind of referendums on our privacy. We have mm -hmm. been speaking with media and communication scholar Matthew Crane, who wrote the Boston Review essay, How Capitalism, Not a Few Bad Actors Destroyed the Internet, which is adapted from his uh, most recent book, Profit Over Privacy, How Surveillance Advertising Conquered the Internet. You can follow Matthew on Twitter at Mediated, followed by the number one, one last question for you, Matthew. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write that media empires were created as advertising became the leading edge of the global advance of consumerism, serving the ideological market building needs of a profitable and astonishingly productive industrial economy. So if advertising is important to the global advance of consumerism, is advertising a kind of 
colonialism or some sort of imperialism or some way in which the U.S. expands its global domination. Is the Internet, or is the Internet, I should say more so, is advertising a kind of colonialism? Well, there's a whole strand of critical media uh, around media, around advertising, around privatizing public spheres were exported from the West and particularly to the United States into all other types of uh, former colonized uh, regions of the world. I think there's a very strong case to be made that these things are absolutely interconnected. Matthew, thank you so much for being on our show this week. I truly appreciate it. Everybody should check out your book again, Profit Over Privacy, How Surveillance Advertising Conquered the Internet. Thank you so much for being on our show because this is a way in which we have not discussed the internet in the past, in a way in which we have not discussed privacy in the past. So I really appreciate you being on the show. Thanks for having me, Chuck. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is hell if what you just heard from Matthew on why the internet sucks as bad as it does. If that made you realize, yes, this is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which this week streams live on Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. More on that in a little bit. And this podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash this is hell. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and just clicking on support. When you become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, not only do you get a special code word giving you a discount on all of our merchandise that you can find right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, but you also get access to over 350 past Patreon podcasts with each and every one featuring a monologue by me in a classic interview that currently they're not available anywhere else online. What the whole point of our Patreon money or fundraising is to eventually have the resources to not only pay all of our uh, staff a working or living wage, but also to make it so we can have all of our past shows freely accessible to everyone. On last week's Patreon podcast, to exist in the United States is to tolerate what we have to put up with. We have to normalize a lot of really hellish stuff about living here, or actually anywhere for that matter, when we are living in under one market, under God, uh, always under the ubiquitous influence or control of capitalism as it exists today in the U.S. of A. We, we have to embrace so many denialisms just to fit in that we rarely recognize the fact that we are living within denialism. Sure, there's the obvious ones like climate change denialism, but there are plenty more types of denialism, including the denialism that is necessary in order to enjoy or celebrate any of our major holidays, which are all steeped in willful ignorance in order to have a good time with family and friends. That's right. Here on This Is Hell, or I should say on our Patreon podcast, we are no longer satisfied with, with the war on Christmas, and we've decided to go on the attack against all of the holidays. Also on Patreon, with the rail workers' strike being stopped by the government, we thought it would be interesting to see what we were discussing about labor issues when it, way back in 2002, like 20 years ago to the date. So we shared an interview from December 7th of that year, which featured Dan Kovalik, then Assistant General Counsel of the United Steelworkers. Dan was about to accompany Luis Galvis to Chicago. Luis was coming to Chicago to inform people about the ongoing abuses by Coca-Cola in Central and South America. 
But there's more. Luis was also a member of the Santo Domingo uh, community in Colombia. And four years prior to the conversation we shared on Patreon last week, Luis witnessed the December 13, 1998 massacre, a bombardment perpetrated by the U.S.-backed Colombian Air Force on his village. But the only way you can hear me launch the war on all of the holidays in a 20-year-old conversation about a U.S.-backed military committing a massacre and the abuses being committed by Coca-Cola at the time is by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Sebastian, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding. Uh, I can't because Facebook is down. Oh, really? It's not. It's not us. It's keep, the whole... it keeps telling me uh, the page is we can't reach the page, and I reload it, and nothing happens. Uh, and so the whole Facebook's went, down. Something went wrong. No, just our page. Oh, no, that's great. If something went wrong. Please, please try reloading the page. The only thing we can see on our Facebook page right now is uh, live Monday at 10 p.m. The thing uh, yeah, that I posted. Announcement that yeah. you posted. Yeah. All right. So we'll uh, maybe have some more of your answers. <laughs> our next moment here on This Is Hell. Manufacturing Descent since 1996. This is hell. It's now time for Dr. Sebastian Vopper and the past inside the present. When Sebastian, who has a PhD in history, gives us the historical context from the past that we need to have a better understanding of our present. Sebastian, take it away. The past inside the present. Oh, the railroads. Chugga-chugga-choo-choo. That is the sound of progress, or at least it used to be. Railroads play an odd role in the history of the United States. The railroad companies were among the first nationwide corporations in the modern sense because operating a railroad simply requires that kind of organization. And in the United States, the bigger the railroad corporation, the broader the corruption they got away with. Uh, railroads always depended on government support, especially the big interstate and transcontinental lines. From the very beginning, when the government ceded vast amounts of land to them, up to the various big strikes that were ultimately broken with the might of the army. So, yeah, what's happening today with the railroad workers and their rights um, is really a tradition as American as apple pie. Um... The railroads have issues with with uppity workers. Well, some and none other than Uncle Sam to ensure profits keep flowing uninterrupted. Consequences be damned. The first major la- labor uprising in this country was a railroad strike, and it was the called the Great Railroad Strike of 1877. When the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad Company cut their workers' wages three times in a single year, the workers of the company blockaded the rail cars, demanding higher wages. The company said, well, but we're in the middle of a, uh, of a, of a depression here, so what do you want from us? Uh, the workers were like, well, you're not really giving us anything. Um, you're just cutting wages. You're, you're demanding longer hours. We're not, we're not getting any, anywhere here. Uh, you're just exploiting us, and the companies were just like, no, we're not, it's, it's out of our hands. Um, and, uh, well, ultimately, this wage cut, the last wage cut in summer of 1877 was uh, basically the straw that broke the rail workers' backs um, because they had been faced with longer hours, stricter control, and less of a say in their day-to-day lives in on their jobs. And uh, these wage cuts that the administration of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroads enacted um, 
followed uh, preceding wage cuts and another railroad, the Pennsylvania Railroad. So like a lot of the a lot of the big railroad companies out in the east of the country basically slashed wages left and right and in, in, in basically in a in a in a race to monopolize more and more uh and the the access to to the relatively newly built railroads and uh faced with revolt the railroad tycoons pleaded to their governors for exi- for assistance the corporations then received both material and personnel support in the form of state militias that moved in to quash the strikes but the presence of armed militias and army units and the National Guard did, surprise, surprise, not do much to defuse the situation. Um, because, well, the presence of militia only spurred the crowds on. Um, and this strike was initially contained in the East, but the discontent among the rail workers began spreading fast along the trunk lines in the summer of 1877. And then on June 22nd, the strike reached Pittsburgh, and their soldiers um, were sent in to quell the unrest, and they eventually fired their rifles into the crowd, killing dozens. And that, uh, as nobody will be surprised, um, yeah, just just exacerbated things further. In reaction to that, the strikers set fire to rail cars and depots, burning down almost the entirety of the Erie Railroad's rolling stock. So they basically burnt down almost everything they had in terms of rail cars. Um, And the local leaders in Pittsburgh found themselves completely unable to control the situation. But if one looks into the coverage of the strike at the time, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Because the newspapers who sympathized with the strikers were quick to point out that the railroad company's constant fight for monopoly power... Uh, was actually what resulted in these horrible working conditions, the shrinking wages, the corruption, the price gouging, uh, that eventually resulted in the the strike erupting. And that does not ultimately sound too different uh, uh, a situation from uh, the one that we find ourselves in in 2022. In contrast to today, however, the workers in 1877 were not unionized, and the strike was indeed an unorganized affair that simply developed its own raging dynamic. It was not the first railroad strike that year even, but the strike in the summer of 1877 quickly ballooned out of control of anyone, and the workers... In other businesses, it began then engaging in sympathy strikes, and before long, the strike had spread from West Virginia along the trunk lines to Chicago and St. Louis. And since the strike happened in the middle of an economic depression, as I said, which had also incidentally been caused by the railway companies and their financiers, you know, playing God with uh, with with the monies. Um, and basically in the entire the entire economy. Uh, so anyway, so the, that but because the strike happened in the middle of um, an economic depression, the country also had a fairly high number of unemployed people running around who eventually joined into the strike action, um, or at least that is what uh, the newspapers at the time who were opposed to the strike said was that it's just like all these unemployed ruffians who joined the who who joined the so-called strike, and that's them who uh, are ultimately responsible for most of the violence that uh, actual workers are not even striking. So it was, I don't know, like the coverage of, of that was really weird. Um, and then several major industrial cities actually came close to, or like St. Louis, engaged in a general strike. So, you know, like where a, a thing where basically all the workers in a, a, a certain locale just strike 
and no longer do work. Um, but the railroad companies would not relent there. Instead, uh, and instead of giving in uh, to the strikers' demands, the railroad companies and uh, their representatives, some of which were actually members of President Rutherford B. Hayes' uh, own cabinet, appealed to the president to send in the army. And uh, so he did. Uh, he called up the remaining troops that were still stationed in the southern states, called up a bunch of troops that were um, fighting Native Americans in the western plains, um, and, uh, yeah, and cracked down on the strike. And so uh, this, basically, the, the railroad strike of 1877 and the crackdown on the strikers demonstrated quite well uh, what was happening in the country, because instead of ensuring the civil rights of the recently freed African Americans in the south, which is why essentially why the troops were still there, even though reconstruction had basically failed at this point, the federal government rather used its considerable power to guarantee corporate profits and to quash labor power. And as I said, reconstruction, um, basically, uh, so the process of reconstruction uh, in the South, uh, uh, reconstruction is, describes this, the process in which the South, after the Civil War, was supposed to be brought back into the Union, uh, as a reformed entity, had basically already failed at this point for reasons that I, I know, like, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but the troops that remained in the South were no longer there to truly enforce anything, just basically to sort of, like, maintain a threatening presence. Um, but now that they were removed entirely in order to quash a strike, was not lost even on most of the contemporary commenters that it was really... That the government was basically giving up in its in its uh, uh, you know role of enforcing civil rights and instead just enforces corporate rights now. Um, but the 1877 strike was not the only nationwide railroad strike in in the 19th century. Um, another massive strike hit in 1894 when the workers at the Pullman uh, Palace Car Factory stopped working. Um, their boss, George Pullman who had invented the Pullman Palace sleeper car and subsequently ran a monopoly business on sleeper train cars around the country. So he basically produced the cars and he staffed them with uh, uh, the Pullman Palace car porters. So basically, uh, uh, and, and monopolized the sleeping car business on um, passenger trains in the 19th century. Um, anyway, and so that made this guy, Pullman, very, very rich. Um and uh, uh, so Pullman had slashed the, the workers' wages uh, by 30% that year because the company had been hit pretty hard by uh, another economic crisis. Oh, it's, it's kind of funny how where the, all these economic crises come from all of the time. It's almost almost like the system that we're living in here is, you know, not that great. Um, but anyway, uh, so the, the workers off the Pullman Palace Car Company also had their wages slashed that year because ostensibly because of an economic crisis but the thing was that they lived in uh, Pullman in a factory town south of Chicago where most of Pullman's workers lived um, and uh, well he had put his own name on the town uh, humble person that he was uh, and since this was his company town he also controlled rent for the workers and ran all the stores in town and while he had slashed the wages due to the economic downturn even after workers pleaded with him he refused to also lower the rents or the costs of goods and stores according accordingly instead he just dismissed the workers who complained about that um 
And uh, this time, however, the workers were actually unionized. And as part of the American Railway Union, they called upon their union leader, friend of the show, Eugene Debs, who issued an order that all union workers were to boycott, so not to work on any trains that contained Pullman Palace sleeper cars. Which meant that within a week, about 125,000 railway workers across the country walked off the job rather than handling Pullman cars. Um, The railway companies then hired scabs to break the strike, um, which just kept on spreading. And then eventually President Grover Cleveland brought in his eternal attorney general who managed to get a circuit court injunction against the strike, legally forbidding the railway union to engage in work stoppage. Again, kind of reminds you of something in the news today. Uh, and Debs and his union, uh, however, vowed to disobey, to disobey the injunction, and at which point, again, federal troops were employed to violently break the strike. So what does all of this have to do with today? Well, here is the demonstration that the American government has traditionally always sided with the industry rather than making industry comply with the, comply with the demands from workers, re- completely regardless of how reasonable these demands might be. The demands that the workers in the 19th century had were essentially no less reasonable than the demands that the workers today have. I mean, and it is, of course, a travesty that uh, of the highest order that we have a whole industry here in this country today that not only does not give its workers any sick days, but essentially disallows workers from being sick in the first place. Because I don't know if you've heard that, because it's basically if a worker, on uh, uh, if a railway worker uh, engaged with these monopolistic companies misses a number of days, even if they're not paid because he got sick, well, then he just gets fired. Um, so not only do people not have sick days, they just literally can't get sick. Uh, which is, in a way, a sign of the times uh, of this new and advanced Gilded Age that we live in, with rampant monopolies, equally rampant corruption, and mercilessly streamlined employment that is, in fact, so slim that no worker can get sick without the whole system starting to fall apart. And just as it, just as it has done throughout history, the federal government supports the industrialists in their endeavors to keep on squeezing their workers, not making the slightest concessions. So we shall see if labor-friendly, quote-unquote, President Biden will do as his predecessors did and bring in the National Guard to break the strike, if that should come to pass. So, which is to say, this is hell, but also solidarity with um, with uh, the railway workers, should they, basically whatever they should, whatever they decide to do, where, like, at least I, for one, am a... Uh, and supporting their efforts. Yeah, and uh, some people have said now that this isn't going to happen, the railway strike isn't going to happen because the Biden administration intervened, that the uh, strike, that the railway workers should just have a wildcat strike, just go on strike anyway, except for what I was reading from an attorney, a labor attorney, who said that they can't go on a wildcat strike because if you go on a wildcat strike, then you can actually legally not only be fired but you can lose whatever pension that you might have uh, guaranteed for you when you yeah, retire that's that's that's, uh, that's apparently also really one of the reasons why the people don't just quit this job because that's the way that um the american system like and this is kind of specific to the american system um not just with the health insurance but also with pensions ties people to their jobs and then if their jobs are really bad and uh they have really crappy working conditions that they can't get out of you can't really get out of the job because if you get out of the job you just lose all your pension right so they're holding your uh, retirement hostage yeah basically 
so maybe the best thing that we that could possibly happen is a general strike. But then you'd have to get everybody else outside of that industry to go on strike, and I just don't see that kind of worker solidarity happening not here in, in the United this, States. Not in this country. Not as not the country is too big for that, and then also just too you know captured. Yeah, but I just wish I'd see more people saying, how about a general strike instead of people saying, we, they should just have a wildcat strike. Just go on strike anyway, because that's where they suffer and nobody else would suffer. So this is normally when I ask Sebastian who is coming up on this week's show, but 2022 has been anything but normal for me. First, we had all new producers join the staff, which is absolutely fantastic. I really love working with Lindsay and Sebastian and Dan. But whenever we have new people working on the show, it's like getting, a, you know, it's it's not only like getting a, a boost of energy, it, like the show is brand new, but it also takes a little bit to have any kind of transition. However, that transition did not go as well as we expected because only two months into this year, I needed life-saving surgery. Make that surgeries, as in plural, over the next five months with a long-term recuperation from each medical procedure or recovery I'm still going through to this day and likely will be for another seven or eight months. After all of that, I got COVID and real bad. So there's been nothing normal about this year for me. And while we would like to stay on our Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday live stream schedule with the Patreon podcast happening every Thursday, yet again, we will not be doing that this week. Instead, our next two shows are on Wednesday and Thursday, and our Patreon podcast this week happens on Friday. At least I hope so. I have yet another follow-up appointment with my doctor that I completely forgot about, and uh, he's going to be telling me how my recovery is going so far. If all is well, we will be back here Wednesday and Thursday with all new live shows, and we'll, 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 we will be here on Friday for Patreon. So thanks to everyone for your patience with me and my horrible health this year. And if all goes well, we will be back here Wednesday with This Week in Rotten History. We will reveal what is happening on this week's Patreon podcast on Thursday, which streams live this week on Friday. We will also have another moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin, and we'll announce the winner of this week's question from hell. We'll actually be able to read your responses, hopefully by tomorrow, but I also have for some reason been locked out of our Facebook account, which is interesting. But whoever does win this week's Question from Hell gets their choice of This Is Hell merchandise, which you can find right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Sebastian Vooper for producing We Told You So. (laughs) We, We mean it this week. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>